Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 will be our text today, this morning. And today we'll be looking at verses 4 or 5 through 7, having looked at verses 1 through 4 last time we met together. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 so we can grasp the overall context somewhat, and then I'll give my introduction and we'll get into the Word. Follow along with me as I read. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let's pray together once again. Our Father, we thank You for Your special revelation, the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we thank You for this particular book written to young Timothy as he labors in the city of Ephesus. We thank you for the wise words and the inspired words of the Apostle Paul to this young minister. And Lord, as a young church, as it were, as a church plant, Lord, we desire to glean and to learn many things from the Apostle Paul, from you, O God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would Allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate our eyes, to quicken our minds, that we would, as it were, put on our theological thinking caps, that we might grasp a full understanding, a complete understanding of this glorious text set before us. Lord, we pray that You would even grant the Holy Spirit to the one uttering words in the front, and Lord, that all that is done would be pleasing before You. We ask this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. You'll remember when we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw that, that Paul is beginning to give the instructions for the local church, how the local church is to operate. And he gives those words, first of all then, the idea of primacy of importance. First of all then, your prayers must be right. Your prayers must be directed to the proper object. Your prayers ought to saturate everything that you do in the meeting of the local church. We talked about how the early church was known for its prayers, and we surveyed several verses in the book of Acts. You remember that. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed before everything they prayed. And so too, prayer demonstrates our dependence upon God. And that's why our worship services are marked by prayer. We pray at the beginning. We pray during the worship. We pray in the preaching. We pray at the end of the service because we are confessing to God that we need His help in all things. 
And the reality is, is that the success of the spread of the gospel, the success of the preaching of the word, the success of the scattering of gospel seed is, is dependent upon our prayers. God uses means and the blessing and, and His sovereign working of all things. His providence is, is worked out and He supernaturally intertwines our prayers as to how things unfold. In verse 1, He uses four words for, the, for prayer, really. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. And we looked at each one of those, different nuances that are very important. And then He says at the end of verse 1, and for all men, or on behalf of, of all men. And we develop from the context. This means all classes of men, kings and subjects, rulers and Gentiles and, and Jews, and without the distinction of race or nationality, for all men we ought to pray. It doesn't matter their social position. It doesn't matter how much money they have. We ought to pray for all men. We gave the application that in Paul's day, this is at the time when Nero was reigning, when Christians were being tortured for their faith. And Paul, no doubt, is including, when he says kings, Nero. And so the application to us is we should pray globally. We should think beyond these four walls, beyond this country. We should think globally and pray for communist nations. Pray for the persecuted Christians and the evil men that inflict that persecution. Pray earnestly for our president, governors and senators, and all of these things, we have a responsibility to do this. And then prayer leads to a a peaceful and and tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity, he says. And these prayers really reflect the attitude of God because it says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires, who wishes all to be saved. It does not mean every single person in the world. We develop that last time, but we see something of the heart of God our Savior who has a real genuine desire that all types of men without distinction of class would be saved. We talked about the moral will of God, the sovereign will of God. We're we're not going to go into that today. So now in verses 5-7, to Paul begins to give the means by which we're saved. And the title of the message is God's Method of Salvation. Very simple. And Paul begins here to give the means by which we are saved. He desires all sorts of men to be saved, but now this is how they are saved. That is, that if anyone would be saved, they must come through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ and coming, confessing His ransom, paying for their sins. And as I said, we must put on our thinking caps. We must, we, must, we must remove preconceived notions and come to the Scriptures and say, what are the Scriptures teaching us? What are they saying? And we have to think. We can't just lightly read over it and come to some you know, half-nilly conclusion. And all this to the end that we would have a greater love and appreciation for God's eternal plan in saving His chosen People. So we're going to consider verses 5 to 7 under four main heads. They're all simple. It all begins with one. One true God, one mediator between God and man, one effectual ransom, and one gospel message to proclaim. So, first of all, one true God. The text says, for, that is, there, there is one God. Let's just stop there. The idea that all other gods, all other 
deities that claim to be God are idols. There is one God. And Paul begins by addressing the very unity of God. In our minds, we'd probably go back and think to the book of Isaiah, among other places, where it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides Me. You see the exclusivity there of the one God. The world can boast of many gods. The council of world religions can come up with all these different gods and and a god after their own liking. Various cults and countries and nations can come up with all these different descriptions of what deity is. But the Word of God is clear, brethren. There is one God. The one that is the first. The one that is the last. The truth of there being one God is really the bedrock of Old Testament theology, isn't it? Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what was true in the Old Testament is most certainly true and revealed in the New Testament. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says this in chapter 8, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all other things exist, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So the truth of the idea of there being one God is central throughout the Word of God. Um, Paul, answering objectors in the book of Romans, chapter 3, he says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Or is He not of the, the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed... God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. You see, it's the same God. And the Jews couldn't understand this. The Jews said, no, that's our God. No, and Paul, the whole, the, one of the thrusts of the book of Romans is to show, no, Gentiles are being grafted in. It's through faith in Christ that you come to this one God. There's one God. There's not a God for each and every different nation. And and consider the context of of young Timothy as he labors there in Ephesus. Ephesus was a place filled with false gods. And and, and he's laboring in that context here. And so, uh, Paul emphasizing this is important. The idea of one God proves what's called monotheism. But but just if if the text stopped there, it wouldn't necessarily prove Christianity, would it? it? It would prove monotheism, right? But... But the text goes on. There are so many in our day that claim, you know, that that believe in pluralism, that there's so many ways to God, such as the Baha'i faith and Hinduism and Buddhism and all these other isms and Islam and, and all of this and a series of other cults, that there's all of these different ways to get to God. Even among New Agers themselves confess all these different ways to God and you become God. And it's all a big distortion. Of course, then you have the postmodernists over here that says, well, there is no God. There is no absolute truth. And they're tolerant of absolutely anything. If you think the tree in the back is a God, well, that's fine for you. I think the North Star is the God, and that's fine for me. They're completely tolerant of anything except for one thing, intolerance. (laughs) They're not tolerant of that, are they? Friends, the Bible is clear. Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved 
than the Lord Jesus Christ. We sung it just earlier in our worship service. John 14.6, Christ's own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. You see the mediator uh, language there. And then, of course, in His priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. So Paul starts out here with the centrality, the exclusivity, that there is one God. But then he moves on and he says, one mediator also between God and men. You see, we have the one God, but, and then we have man, sinful man here, but there needs to be some means of mediation. And Jesus Christ is the only mediator. He is the go-between. He is the, the reconciler. And why do we need a mediator? It's because of our sin. By nature, we're enemies of God. We're alienated from Him. And so we need a mediator. We can't go to Him directly on our own without a mediator. He's too holy. He's too pure. We'll be consumed in His presence if we think we can. We are filled with sin. Full of sin, as the hymn writer says. To think that you can somehow approach God on your own merit is folly. You need someone. You need a go-between. You need a mediator. Wasn't that the cry of Job, one of the oldest books really in the Old Testament canon as far as chronologically wise? He says, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. This is chapter 9, verse 32. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. There's no go-between. And it's interesting, the verses right immediately before that to, to emphasize this point that it's our sin that alienates us from God and that's why we need a mediator. Job says, I'm reading two verses before what I just read, <clears throat> I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. And that's when he says, is there no man? You know, I'm, I'm not a man. He's, or he's not a man um, as I am. And he needs a mediator. It's interesting in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word um, in that passage here where it's translated there is no umpire in the NAS is actually the same Greek word, mesitis. It means one who intervenes between two, either in order to make or restore peace and to bring reconciliation. Or it can be used for the ratifying of a covenant. And so, Jesus Christ, as it were, by His mediation, we're going to develop this, bridges the gap, the huge gap, between a holy God and sinful man. He bridges the gap as the mediator. He is fully God, and therefore He meets God's standards. And the whole idea of this this gap being bridged between Creator and creature demonstrates the infinite and absolute goodness and mercy of God that He would even extend Himself to sinful men. Sinful men ought to be wiped out. They ought to be sent to hell. But in God's eternal plan and in His mercy, He reconciles sinners to Himself. 
the book of Hebrews chapter 8, says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. We looked at that when we went through our London Baptist confession on the covenants in detail. So he's fully God. That's why he can represent God on God's terms. But, but what Paul emphasizes here in the Scriptures is that he's fully man also. And this is very important. He has to have both. So the mediator also between God and men, and it's emphatic, the man, Christ Jesus. The anthropos, Christ Jesus. It's emphatic here. The reason Jesus is the only mediator, the only mediator that that, that can even be possible is because He alone possesses deity and manhood. He is the God-man. You hear that phrase. And sometimes you can just let it flow off your lips so easily. But He is truly God and He's truly man. And there's a mystery involved with that. You see, angels do not possess both natures, do they? So you can't go to an angel to be a mediator. You know, Gabriel or whoever else you want to you list by name. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, can't be a mediator because she's, she, was a, she was a real woman. She's man, as it were, in the generic sense. But is she full deity? Absolutely not. You can't go through Mary to approach God. You might as well just go through your sister or your mother or your grandmother or whatever. It's the same thing. You're just merely trying to go through another human. Must have deity, both a divine nature and a human nature. The error of thinking that you can go through some of these so-called Roman Catholic saints and all of that is wrong. And it deceives millions, doesn't it? Millions are deceived in believing that there's other mediators when the Holy Scriptures is so clear. How many mediators tend to choose from? No. One mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. You see what happens when people don't read the Scriptures and when they believe what somebody tells them and they don't, they're not good Bereans and they don't look into this book to see what it says? That's as clear as can be, and yet millions, yea, nearly a billion are deceived in thinking that somehow they can receive mediation to God through some other means. It's wrong. And how we ought to declare the truth and hold up the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures and the truth revealed therein. You see, it's an utter insult to the work of Christ who who for our sakes became poor. He donned human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He came into this world not with red carpets in a castle. He was in a manger. He donned human flesh. The God-man, He grew. He lived the perfect life. And then He died on the cross for sinners. And to say that there's some other mediator out there that you think is more suitable than Him is an insult to Christ. try to approach God in some other way than God's divinely appointed means is folly. It's folly. If you're going to approach God, you must do so by His appointed means, and that is the mediator of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is fully able to reconcile God to man. 
What large mercy and pity is revealed in this picture. And it reveals God's heart, the heart of God to sinners that He would go to such great lengths to redeem them in sending His own Son. And we need to remember that, that His justice and His exactness is not compromised by His mercy and vice versa. Listen to what Augustine says. He says, God neither lost the severity of His justice in the goodness of His mercy, nor lost the goodness and mercy goodness of His mercy in the exactness of His severity. Now, how could that be true? It's because He paid, poured out all of His exactness, all of His wrath upon the substitute. And that's really where we're going. There was a ransom that was paid that satisfied that. So therefore, he, He can be merciful. He can be filled with love. And He can maintain His holiness and His justice because He has poured it all out on the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul mentions his human nature, emphasizes that more here, pointing to the identity of those whom the mediator represented, us men. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 emphasize the same thing, that he was a high priest because he was a man he can sympathize with us. Also, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5 emphasizes that he is the second Adam. He's the one that came to, to repair what the first Adam had destroyed. And he really was a man. And I read this verse last week in the Lord's Supper. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He really did take on flesh and blood. In fact, our confession summarizes this wonderfully. Listen to this as I read just a section of chapter 8 which is entitled Christ the Mediator, in paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance equal with Him, who made the world and upholdeth and governeth all things, hath made He, when the fullness of time had come, take, take upon Him man's nature and all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet was without sin, and then skipping down to the end, so that, so that two whole, perfect, distinct natures being inseparably joined together into one person without conversion, without composition or confusion, with which is very God and very man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man." See, there's, there's a mystery here that the exclusivity of salvation comes through this one mediator and Him alone. But yet in the context, who desires all types of men to be saved. You see, you've got the exclusivity, the narrowness as it were, that there's only one way of salvation, but yet it's offered to all, a whole world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Gospel can be declared, whosoever will let Him come. Whosoever will confess with his mouth, believe in his heart, will be saved. But it must be through these means, through the mediator, not through some other way. A mediator, the, the, the mediator is not necessarily an office of Christ, but more of a function of Christ. Okay, and and the offices of a mediator are prophet, priest, and king, which we're going to unpack those in detail. 
um, in some time coming up when we get back to our confession. But what does a prophet do? He's one that represents God among the people, right? He represents God. He, was, he called himself a prophet, Jesus did in Luke 13. Uh, he brings the message from the Father. He reveals the way of salvation. He speaks as one with authority. But then the idea of a priest is what? He represents the people before God. He comes to God representing the people. That's why Christ is our great high priest. Isaiah 53, Psalm 110 predicted the priesthood of the coming Redeemer. Of course, again and again throughout the New Testament speak of His priestly work that He bore our sins. He's the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. Again and again, verses reveal this. And then His kingship. That as a son of God, he shares in the universal dominion of God. He rules, he defends, he upholds, as the confession goes on to say. And that kingship is related to the work of being a mediator because he is the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. He's the head of the church. And so it's exercised over the church and then over all of the universe as well. I'll just give it to you for reference for the sake of time, but in chapter 8 of 1689, paragraph 10, uh, the Baptist had a wonderful paragraph. You can read that later about the idea of prophet, priest, and king and how it relates to his office as a mediator, his function as a mediator. Well, let's move on. So now we've been considering this method of salvation, that first it's one God, it must be through one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And now, moving on, to consider one effectual ransom. Verse 6. We've established the identity of the mediator, who he is, that he is the God-man, and then who, speaking of the mediator, gave himself as a ransom for all. This is how the mediation is accomplished. It's through his ransom. Jesus gave himself. See, he's described about who the mediator is, and now he begins to describe the work of the mediator, how he brings this about. And it says that, that he gave himself. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, willingly giving himself. In John chapter 10, the words of Christ, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. John 10, 17 and 18. That text shows us that it was a voluntary offering. He was not coerced into this. It wasn't as though the Father behind the curtain twisted the son's arm and said, yes, you will do this. It was a voluntary offering. A voluntary offering out of love for the Father, but love for His people as well. He gave Himself as a ransom. Jesus did not die for His own sins, It's not as though he had some sins of his own that he had to die for, and he just said, well, just give me a few more. You know, like a prisoner serving a 10-year sentence, and he takes his buddy's two-year sentence, and so it totals to 12. No, he was sinless. 
did not die for his sins, but he died for the sins of others. And this speaks to the idea of him being a substitute. He stood in our place. He stood in our stead. And the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement is hated by many in our day. But it is clearly taught in the Word of God. It's taught here, Isaiah 53, Romans 8, other places. So the atonement of Christ paid the ransom that you owe. Now, what is a ransom? We should define this. This might be helpful for the kids. It's been described as buying back. That's, that's not quite, doesn't really capture it all. But it has the idea of a captive being released after a payment has been made. Being released after a payment has been made. Literally, it's as a price paid or the means used to get someone free from captivity or bondage. Figuratively, it's of Christ's atonement for sin, the price of redemption, the means of deliverance. That's from one of the lexicons. So to use a, a generic illustration that just falls way short, if if Greg Gaiman owed $1,000 to the local government and I went down there and wrote a check or brought cash and paid it, he's free from the punishment of that debt that he owed. But this word here for ransom, it's usually lutron in the original. This is a compound word that Paul uses that's packed full of meaning. And we need to go through this slow. Added to the standard word for ransom is the preposition anti or instead of. It can be translated Christ did not merely pay a ransom to free us, but He became the victim in our place. Uh, as Leon Morris calls it, a substitute ransom is one way that you could accurately translate just this word ransom in our original. A substitute ransom. Instead of, He stood in our place. When He died on the cross, He made an exchange for sin. And, and it was not some price paid to the devil, as some mistakenly teach, but it was an infinite payment made to satisfy the wrath of Almighty God. A payment that was made and acceptable to Almighty God. A, a, a payment that, that truly satisfied God's just anger against sin so that, that He propitiated for our sins. In other words, to satisfy His justice. So He had to be both God and man to accomplish this work. He had to be a true man to represent the people of whom He was dying. He had to be a truly God to be sinless, to be a suitable sacrifice that would be pleasing to God. Listen to Charles Spurgeon in a sermon that he preached when he was probably 21 or 22 years old. He says, when a prisoner has been taken captive and has been made a slave, typically before he could go free, that a ransom price should be paid down. Now, by the fall of man, we were the irreproachable judgment of God given up to the vengeance of the law. We were given into the hands of justice. Justice claimed us to be his bond forever unless we could pay a ransom. It was just then that Christ stepped in and instead of all believers paid the ransom price, that we might in that hour be delivered from the curse of the law and the vengeance of God and go our way clean, free, and justified by His blood. You see, had not the mediation of Christ and the ransom of the Lord Jesus Christ 
We would be there to pay for all eternity. But He stepped in at just the right time. Now, when He says here in verse 6, who gave Himself as a ransom, and then the words, for all. We should talk about the theological implications of this phrase. <clears throat> if you're feeling drowsy, pinch yourself or something like that. This is, this is really important. The word for for is huper, which has occurred two other times in this passage. A just translation of huper is for the sake of or on behalf of. And when he says for all, it's on behalf of all. And then we should take the word all as it's been used in this context in verse 4, who desires all sorts of men to be saved. In verse 1, on behalf of all men, pray for all men. It's all kinds or all sorts of men. Uh, men indiscriminately from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now some use this verse and say this is teaching a universal atonement. That is that somehow Christ paid the ransom for every single human being in the world, alive, dead, uh, whatever, every single soul. And there's, there's two schools of thought here. There's a universal atonement that somehow Christ paid for every single person's uh, you know, paid for all of their sins. And then, of course, there's just universal salvation that if that's true, the logical conclusion is that every single person in the world would be saved. If all their sin is paid for before God, certainly every single one is going to be saved. Well, we need to consider this slowly. When it says he gave himself a ransom for all, it speaks to the sufficiency of the atonement. Okay? The effective, the, how it was effectual, not its design. It's talking about the effectual work of the mediator. And that's why I've called this an effectual ransom. We must consider the, 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 the doctrine of the extent of the atonement in light of other scriptures. There's a series of other scriptures that talks about he gave himself for the church. He, he died for his people. And in the five points of Calvinism, you know, the little acronym TULIP, the middle L is typically referred to, uh, to limited atonement. A better translation might be, or a, I'm sorry, a better term, definite atonement. That is, when he paid for our sins, he knew each and every sin that he was paying for and each and every single person of whom he was dying for. He actually knew who they were, he knew the sins, and he paid for every single sin. He actually paid it all. He did not simply die to just make salvation possible. What a cruel adjustment, a, a, a cruel justice if that were the case. Ask yourself, brethren, and think about this. Did Jesus really die for Antichrist? There's several Antichrists in the world, but there's a man that will be raised up as Antichrist. Did he really die for Judas? Did he really die for, for these people? Did he really pay the debt of every single person? If that was true, every single person in the world would be saved. It's not true. You see, there's no double jeopardy with God. Sins are paid for in one of two places. Either on the cross of Christ on Calvary 2,000 years ago or spending an eternity in hell. He doesn't die for Joe's sins out there and pay for all of his sins and pay the ransom and all of that to make him free so that God can say, well, you're still going to hell. That's an injustice to the work of Christ. 
Sins are paid for in one of those two places, either by Christ on the cross or for the unbeliever and for the one for whom Christ did not die in eternity in hell's fires. There's no double jeopardy with God. We can't compromise His justice, the attribute of the justice of God. Christ's atonement is unlimited in its sufficiency. Is the blood precious enough to save all? Yes, absolutely, but it's limited in its application. There's an actual salvation brought about for a distinct people. It says that He will save His people. Christ's own words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Ephesians 5, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Same terminology, gave Himself up. Uh, R.L. Dabney says in so many words, the paraphrase, that His blood is sufficient for a thousand worlds of souls. But on the other hand, if there was only one sinner, only Seth, way back, all of the work of Christ would be needed to redeem him because of sin. The theologian Shedd, Presbyterian theologian, says that the extent in which medicine is offered and not limited to the number of people who buy and use it, its cure of the disease is the sole reason in selling it, so it is offered to everybody. Uh, In other words, medicine, the cure for the sin disease, it's offered to all, but only effectual in those who will actually take the medicine. And how do you take the medicine? By being like the publican and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Confessing your sins. Confessing all of that and looking to Christ. In First Peter, we read from it, but chapter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. That verse speaks of a real payment, a real ransom that has been made. John 10, the Good Shepherd lays His life down for the sheep, not the goats. And there will be a separation of the sheep and the goats in the last day. He lays His life down for the sheep. So the question boils down here to the use of the word all. We discussed it at length. I'm not going to hammer it again. We discussed it last week. But all does not always mean every single person, every single thing without exception. We must take these verses in its context, the greater context, and a careful study of these verses. I think you're going to come to the same conclusion. I'll give you a couple other examples. I mean, it's real easy to say if you look at the word ponton, which is all in the original you can say, well, the Apostle Paul in his writings, he uses all all the time. Right? But if that was, if that was true all the time, every book of the Bible that he wrote would be all, 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 all. Okay, right. But he uses the word often, right? But he doesn't use it every single absolute word that he ever does. One final thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, which we will get to soon, it says, for the love of money, I want you to turn there. Just turn over. You know this verse. If you have an old King James Version, it's going to say, the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay? Um, and in the original, it actually says all evil. But the translators and the NAS, the NIV, and probably the ESV, I forgot to check, add the, the interpretive words that, that is perfectly valid 
all sorts of evil, all types of evil. Do you see that? It's the same construction, all evil, but does it mean every single evil that's ever been in the world and ever will be as as a result of money? No, it does not. But there are many sins that come as a result of money. Adultery, murder, all of these kinds of things. Idolatry, right? There's many sins that come as a result of that, but it's not the root of all evil. So, as you see all translated in the same book, by the popular translations, all sorts of evil, you go back and you think, in verse 4, who desires all sorts of men to be saved? The context demands that because of what he said earlier, for kings and, and, and all who are in authority. In verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all sorts of people, for all, is a testimony given at the proper time. So I don't want to beat that with a dead horse. I hope that that helps somewhat. He unquestionably paid a ransom, an effectual ransom, for all types of people. He does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, ethnicity, uh, gender, rich or poor. He is the Savior of all men. Well, let's move on now as we consider our last point. We've seen the method of salvation, that there's one God, one mediator, one ransom. And now, there's one gospel message to proclaim. The end of verse 6 and verse 7 says, The testimony given at the proper time, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth and am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. One gospel message to proclaim. He says in 6b, the testimony given at the proper time. What testimony? The testimony of God's mercy being manifested to a world that a ransom has been paid by a mediator. In Galatians, Paul writes similar language when he says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The proper time or the appropriate season uh, is God's revealing His mercy at a special time now in the work of Christ. But it's also, it could apply to each of you individually. Think of a time when you were saved. It was the appropriate time. It was the proper time when God removed the scales from your eyes so that you could understand the Gospel, so that you could believe the Gospel. truth of God's salvation is now broadcasted to all. And we ought to declare it. And some of you here today, is it the proper time for you to hear as you've heard about the work of Christ? Have you heard the method of salvation? It's through one God, one mediator, one ransom. And there's one Gospel message. There's not many ways to be saved. Perhaps it's the proper time for you In verse 7, very quickly, for this I was appointed a preacher. Paul uses that language several times through the pastoral epistles. We saw it already twice in chapter 1. And so the idea that, you know, it's not a man just decides to be a preacher. The Holy Spirit makes preachers. It's in the passive tense. I was appointed. I was placed into this role. It's the work of God that makes preachers. In Ephesians 3.7, he says, for which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And what is a preacher? A preacher is a herald. A preacher is one that proclaims. One that, you know, there wasn't CNN and the internet and and your local news on the television back then. How did news travel? There were heralds that stood in the city square and made announcements and proclamations. And so a preacher is said to be a herald. 
offering the good news of salvation through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says here that he was a preacher and an apostle, and then after the parentheses, as a teacher. Three different terms, nouns, uh, speaking of Paul, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Now, should we look for somebody that has those three traits today? No, because the office of apostle is done away with, right? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so, but we should look for men who are preachers, gifted of God, and teachers who handle the Word of God. The church has a great need for serious heralds and teachers of declaring this truth. The church that by and large has gone aside, running down every rabbit trail to see what's, what's going to fascinate crowds, whether it be the Starbucks or the drama team or the rock band or whatever, all of these things, rather than declaring the good news of salvation in Christ alone, that He is the only mediator, that He's paid the ransom, you must but look and believe. We need men of conviction that will not compromise the truth of the Word of God, that will preach the whole counsel of God. Paul says in another place, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Romans 9.1 We need men that have sensitive consciences. Men that will never waver from the truth of the Word of God, whether it be for the, the bigger bank account or the fatter wallet or the bigger numbers or the pride, the ego, whatever the reasons are. But to go back to the old paths and to preach the Word of God in its simplicity and trust God for the results. Well, we've seen the means of salvation today. We've seen that Paul preached this Gospel. He preached it with power, didn't he? He also preached it with prayer. And there are several verses we can look at for that. But in conclusion, let me ask you, have you been ransomed by the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? You children, listen to me. You've, you've heard a Gospel message. You've, you, you've heard it from the Word of God. At least when I read it, it should have been clear. I don't know if I've convoluted it. But you've heard the Scriptures that there's one God, one Mediator, the man Christ Jesus. He gave Himself as a ransom for all. In all of its simplicity here, you've, you've heard the testimony of God declared to you today. You've heard the means of salvation. Are you resting in Christ alone? Are you resting in Him as your only mediator? Or do you have several mediators that you go to depending on the day of the week? Don't look to Mary. Don't attempt to approach God in some other way apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you delight in God's grace? Do you bask in His mercy? Do you meditate on His goodness manifested to you? Do you marvel at the whole plan of salvation and how God has worked all of this out and how it's being unfolded even before our very eyes that people are still being saved? People are being rescued from the dominion of sin. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Like the Apostle Paul, the life that I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Do you see how it's personal for Paul? Is it personal for you? Have you been reconciled to God? 
If you haven't, look to Christ. Embrace Him as the mediator and come to Him. It's a dangerous thing to reject Christ as mediator. It's a dangerous thing to reject the Gospel that you are a sinner. You're in need of a Savior. And a Savior has been provided and for you to stiff arm the Savior away as it were. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Don't harden your heart. Humble yourself. And in due time, He will lift you up. And some of you children, I, I, I'm concerned for you because you've heard the Gospel so many times and your heart can become hard, can it? Oh, there He goes again. Oh, there I've heard that enough times. My parents tell me that all the time. And Don't harden your heart. Look into the Scriptures. Pray. Go to God. He'll never turn you away. He doesn't turn away the one that comes in faith to Him. For those of us who have been redeemed, our heart should be melted like wax. It's just just totally humbled under the supreme love of God that He has taken care of the debt that we could never pay. He's paid the ransom price for our salvation. How we should look to Christ through the eye of faith, not images, but through the eye of faith and see Him as a beautiful Savior to fall in love again and if we need to, to return to our first love. How that should excite us. That should enthrall us. Not the Charger game or some other sports. Falling in love with Christ. And remember, there's nothing that you have to boast in. It's not because you were smart enough to choose. It's not because you were smart enough to understand. You have nothing to boast in. Salvation is the work of God. And even the whole doctrine of election, we mentioned last time, it's intended to utterly humble us. Were we around when God was selecting an election before the foundations of the world? Absolutely not. It should humble us, reminding us to give all credit for our salvation. That it belongs to God alone. And we should remember that if we were there when He was crucified 2,000 years ago, we would likely have been those that were saying, crucify, crucify, crucify. The disciples are running, but would we be be the ones saying that? You know, Rembrandt has that painting, the three crosses. And as you look at it, your attention is first drawn to the center figure of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, there as He died. And, And then the crowd gathered around and the different expressions on their faces But art critics say that as you drift to the edge of the painting, you see a figure over in the shadows. And art critics seem to think that that was Rembrandt himself, for he recognized that by his sins, he contributed to the crucifixion of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would knit these precious words of your Holy Scripture to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, that we could benefit from what we have studied today. We pray that you would be exalted as we continue in our worship service. In Jesus' precious name, amen.